I, I want to say something about the difference between like history and poetry. And so when we talk about 2012 from a historical sense, you know, clearly uh, there weren't any trumpets in the sky, but from like a poetic sense, and this is the point that this book makes the whole way through is that, um, uh, so there's, at the beginning of the book, we're talking about, um, you know, this 108 year cycle of Philip K. Dick and Mark LeClaire's Vallis Loop. And so I, I might be mistaken, but LeClaire is saying like, Christ is kind of the thing that sets the Vallis Loop in motion, or it is the, so it's interesting because Zenora then contrasts it. It's like, um, it's both the door to history and the door to eternity. So like poetry somehow is always, it's instantaneous and eternal. And so if you look at 2012 as um, like a portal, like from a poetic sense, it's always 2012. The moment is always here. You don't have to wait for the moment to arrive. It's still, uh, what is it? Bill Murray at the end of, uh, the the Christmas movie. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's always here. It can always be Christmas, um, and it just reminds me of this quote that Zenora utilizes on page three twenty six from the Gospel of Thomas. You know, the kingdom of the Father is spread over the earth, and men do not see it. But we need a twenty twelve to somehow awaken people. You know, so th it's it, it's interesting in light of what you're saying, Alan, is that the that maybe we have these cycles of millennial, you know, dis dissolution or, you know, where we're actually looking forward to something and uh, it doesn't happen. It's always already here. Yeah. And then the other thing with all this 4D, 5D, it's the interstellar moment, right? Where um, the books are being pushed off the bookshelf in the 3D realm from the black iron prison of the 4D realm. So, you know, it is the heart of darkness and the wasteland being brought together by a force that is darkening. Like, that was Joseph Conrad's point. London brings the darkness. London doesn't discover it. Yeah, uh, 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 that's where I've been... Um really interested in uh, some of all the material Zanor brings back up uh, over the course of his book. That's the stuff that I, you know, I, I had been really heavy into that kind of research with the Suicide Kings work I was doing. And then I, I moved away from it. I sort, of, I sort of unplugged from it. And very recently that has come really back for me of being reinterested in that uh that particular study of uh, wasteland, heart of darkness, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's, uh, there's a, some personal synchronicities that I won't get into, but just to say, I, I really appreciate um, where you, and you guys like Wally. You had mentioned after this, you after reading Zenor's book, you're like, oh, I'm going to go out and dig in some PKD. Um, there is a book that I've been meaning to read for the last you know, five years or so, which is uh, Jesse Weston's um, Rich From Ritual to Romance. And that is covered in uh, Zanor's exploration of uh, the wasteland and the heart of darkness. And I, every time I 
pick Sonora's book back up, I realized, oh, I, I really have to go back into that. So it's interesting, Alan, that you mentioned that because that sort of book, the from ritual, what is it? From ritual to um sorry, I'm just trying to romance. find ritual to romance. So that's mentioned in uh, the Norton Anthology to English Literature as being a significant influence on Joyce. And they make a point that um, this book, and it comes up again in their section on T.S. Eliot. Yeah, in Eliot's Notes to the Wasteland, he says, hey, by the way, I was inspired, this section of the Wasteland was inspired by this woman's book. He, he says that explicitly in his own notes. Yeah. And so there's this this element of Snore's understanding of modernism sort of undoing the misunderstandings that certain people have promoted regarding postmodernism. Like one of the quotes I really love from really early in the book is about Humpty Dumpty and the tradition has fallen off the wall. God is dead. Modernism is the attempt, and I'm paraphrasing, to put the pieces back together, but it is more rational and just. Like the king's men and horses, it inevitably fails. Whereas postmodernism is just picking up the pieces and playing with them. And the quote unquote traditionalists are snorting assuming it's pure nihilism there's that misunderstanding i think in a large way of that goes back to hegel that goes back to the inability to ever agree on a reality that there is no way to agree on reality because we are all subjective beings and we must negotiate that to create reality it in effect doesn't exist before we come into it so there is no 4d chess to be played because you can't that would assume that a 3d chess is being played in the first place or a 2d chess for that matter which it isn't well isn't it 3D chess, what we play out while we're talking to each other now. Is that not the case? Well, but then to presume that this conversation has already happened so that then I can come in and play 4D chess by fully anticipating your moves is a fallacy. Like, we have to have the conversation in order for it to be 3D chess, if you want to use that metaphor. Well, a chessboard is a confined space, right? It's a matrix of squares uh, with uh, individualized rules uh, with the goal of uh, murder and uh, capture. And so uh, it's an elevation of reality into a uh, confining reality. It, 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 maybe we we need that confinement 
to then step off the board and then recognize what reality is. Um, I think Trump's 4D chess just simply states, how did this man win an election against the most qualified presidential candidate that we've ever had in our lifetimes? Um, but, there, but there is no most qualified can like you're only because it's like it's a superlative in a sense to be called president like you have it, it you have to have already become it to be it and that was the whole misunderstanding that trump filled a vacuum of disgust and hatred that was channeled into a certain misogyny around hillary clinton but really it goes back to the early 90s and NAFTA and a reaction to Reagan that everyone assumed the first Clinton administration or the only Clinton administration would somehow absolve and NAFTA would be a way of making America great again. And it didn't. And, you know, after eight years of Obama, the hole in the roof is still there and the lead poisoning in the water is not being dealt with. So that was kind of like no more continuation. It's the Hegelian absence, it's the negativity. And in that, Trump was able to fill a void, which he then mistook as his own superpower that he was so much smarter than everybody else that he found his way to the White House and that might is right in that moment. And it, it's a complete misunderstanding. Well, I think that the 4D chess is that whether or not you believe the Russian conspiracies, what was the number one contention of the defeated side is that Russian trolls uh, infiltrated the American internet and used their power of manipulation <laughs> and propaganda to sway an election in the favor of this uh, corrupt idiot, right? Now, all that is is an insult to the 3D chess or the to the to a, a dimension a subdimensional chess that was done with traditional media, uh, TV radio, and let's not forget film, because the number one power source behind uh, Hillary Clinton was Hollywood, right? We can't forget uh, the Hollywood, the, the sacred grove of the entertainment industry that had a, uh, had a, a lock on the dominant uh, sources of media information in the country. Uh, all Trump exposed was that presidential elections from now on will be won and lost on the internet, will be won and lost on viral moments and vi viral promises. And um, it's, it, I don't think it was any in any way by design, but it does point to uh, a moment that ref sort of it resonates with the Kennedy-Nixon uh, election, where Kennedy and the Democrats looked better on TV than pasty, sweaty Nixon. It was just a early uh, um, understanding of how the internet worked and the fact that most Americans were receiving their news uh, from a totally different and independent, unregulated media source. So, yeah, and this, 
uh, in an attempt to, to pull back into the the material, there's something I think was interesting. You mentioned like the sweaty Nixon, which is famous. And this year we got like the sweaty Giuliani, right? Like, oh, what's dripping off his head and all that sort of stuff. Whereas um, anyone pay, half paying attention to realize that Joe Biden wasn't getting any airtime at all. They let him be a concept. He worked better as an invisible opponent than an, a visible anything that could be dissected. And, and so there, there was that, there was Alan, some, you had well, the well, bunker. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So right? I just want to say is that there, there's something really interesting there of like playing on this media awareness. There's so much more. I, I feel like I am so tempted to engage with you guys on this, but I don't want to do this on Zenor's call, on this call about Zenor's book. I really don't, I don't want to do this here. We can do it. We can have this conversation another time because there's so much I'm really tempted to engage with. But, but uh, do you think wanna, this uh, book does that? Because he is trying to create a new reality. He's, he's looking, like I said at the beginning, he's looking at cosmology. He's looking at economics. He's looking at relationships. You know, like, how is it that we be human in the world together? And how is there a way where we don't have to suffer? And so his, his book is kind of like a call to action in that regard. So, like, I've been kind of having the same mental process that I've been working on during the same time span. And I went about it in my own way. But he, I feel like he's, um, he's been more complete as far as, like, uh, his own studies. He's actually got this this unified product as far as like I'm concerned about I'm he he's missing the environment that's the only thing that's missing from the text that I need from Zenor it's like uh how do we live together that doesn't destroy each other and the environment but it's also the new atheist movement splitting into this sort of fascist movement that we we're talking about before with the uh 2012 and the absence of something spectacular happening on that day and no doubt on december 21st in you know whatever it is 14 15 days from now it will be a similar thing where there is that sense of of absence of a grander flash moment of the you know golden bow being knocked off the bookshelf or being included in the mise-en-scene to give us that sign of, you know, the bigger power that is there. No, Znor states early in the book that God is dead and we are, we are the, the ones dealing with the pieces of that. And certainly the, the conversation, Alan, that you're wanting to park. And, and of course, we're happy to come back and revisit it more specifically. But what I was trying to point to was that Trump and Biden both were in their bunkers at different stages towards the end of the campaign, except that Biden was broadcasting out of the bunker. So it was this inversion of transparency where it's he's not there. He is he is not running this campaign where he's out everywhere and energizing people. It's the opposite of that. He's allowing Trump to energize his base in a negative reaction. But at the same time, we see that negative space. And I think that's 
worth commenting on. But it's, I mean, the other thing I think is worth pointing out here is that in Finnegan's Wake, you have this section which Joyce recorded, which is the, and I just want to get the name correct, it is the Anna Livia Perbellum, Anna Livia Pluribel section where the two maids are washing the the clothes of hce and alp and by the end of it as the dusk kind of makes everything completely opaque they become you know as they're crying for shem and shore and stories of shem and shore they become the the tree and the stone they become the environment themselves. And I think that's something that, you know, is worth mentioning in the sense of we can't distinguish one thing from its environment, from the space in which it is existing. And maybe, Bill, to your point, that was the Russian hoax nonsense was that attempt to say, no, no, if we had been in a pure contest where no outside influence was able to infiltrate or sway people, then it would have been a clear victory. Exactly, right? Uh, you are locked out of the editing process when it comes to TV, radio, and film. You have no uh, access to the controls uh, to edit together the sequence with which you get your information. And uh, anyone who studied the I Ching, it is these sequences of hexagrams that time flows through. And uh, when you're on the internet, when you jump from one news source to the next news source, you're essentially editing your own news feed. And you are editing uh, the sequence based on your own interests and your own doubts and your own questions. And this is the most frightening thing to anyone who has spent their entire political career uh, wrestling with and uh, dominating the media uh, or the available media sources. Uh, just a amazingly profound shift in how Americans choose uh, what it is that they, what matters to them and what direction they want to take the country. So Bill, I just, the, uh, just in the last 24, 48 hours, I was listening to, I could be wrong, I think it was like always record number 37. I was listening to an old always record and you were talking about the game of chess uh, and uh, you say that's one of the most frightening things in chess is to see the illuminated path before you that if you know what the next move is that it could, that you should be frightened because it could be that that is the move that your opponent has set for you, right? If it looks like, <laughs> oh, this is the obvious next move. So that anyway, I just heard you talking about this from years ago, right? So it's, it's fresh in my mind. And what I'm thinking about is when you're saying this distinction of who edits, you read who edits together surfing the net, who edits together TV news. The distinction here I'd like to point out is that we have the illusion with our current media situation with a very specific algorithm that is designed to make you feel as if you are in control of your news feed when you are not you I, I don't I, so I think there is um, 
a distinction to be made of are you actually editing together your own reality, your own news and your own information? Are you actually in control of it? Or has the algorithm convinced you that you are in control? You know, when it's like when Burger King says, have it your way, you're still fucking eating Burger King. That's a great point, Alan. And I think that we can all agree that over the last 10 years, we have seen that subtle and now not so subtle shift uh, that our decision-making process that were once completely independent uh, or relatively speaking, completely independent, uh, we're slowly losing that independence. Um, you know, like, um, it's just like if we get off this call and my Facebook feed is flooded with the Queen's Gambit and uh, some special new chess journal, um, there is an infiltration of that, of a new um, subconscious propaganda. And you're right. We, we really don't know this new direction of cyberspace and, and what it is going to lead to. But I do believe that it is the last gasp of a, a dying beast, uh, that most people are annoyed by it. And that, that even though as subtle as they think they're being, even the most uh, thick-headed member of your family will mention the same annoyance of why is it when I talk about uh, Burger King, I get uh, an email for coupons and a Facebook post uh, with a Whopper on it? So that's a great point. Why the internet Bill, sucks? What? I just, well, I just wanted you to join into this call. I feel like you've been quiet for a bit and you commented in the chat here. So I just wanted you to jump in on my. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I'm really glad you made that point, Alan. Um, because it's exactly true and it's exactly why um, I, I felt so sympathetic to what Mark had to say about his lack of interest uh, in a lot of the tribalization and the side taking and, and uh, just, you know, constantly deconstructing the current uh, portrayal of reality that the media in the new media and the old media and the intersections between them are are feeding us and I think that and to Bill's point I mean it doesn't matter whether you're extremely thick-headed or you're extremely discerning and savvy there's an algorithm that's smarter than you and uh, what I fear is that the people who who kind of deem themselves to be the least vulnerable and the most aware of these patterns and um, mechanisms and algorithmic uh, uh, agents in, in place on the internet um, are in many ways not just as vulnerable, but perhaps even more so. And which is why personally I've been very actively withdrawing from, from a lot of the the media's portrayal of what's happening in reality. And to your point earlier about, you know, we we want to care about everyone, you know, black lives mattering and 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 all of these various important issues happening in the world that we feel like we need to contribute to and change. I personally have have withdrawn from on 
trying to have any impact on that in terms of of the the larger scope that that the internet brings us and more into the local community and and really have tried to just limit my engagement online because that is the exact uh thing that is being mined by all of these algorithmic agents is my attention and is my willingness to engage and I feel like that's feeding the beast is just by participating now. And so, yeah, I, I, that was my point. I mean, the, you know, during this rise of blogging culture in the two thousands and up till about 2010 or 11, the internet was, was an incredible place. But in the last decade or so, somebody mentioned this previously, we've seen it descend into something that, really just sucks and i'm i'm becoming more and more internet averse i used to be such a tech you know and gadget freak i used to always get the latest iphone and always whenever the newest os was out i was the first one to install the beta version and now i just i just can't i can't do it anymore um and you know what doesn't suck though wally what's that death sweat of the cluster the book which you can order now for christmas <laughs> and uh it is a it is something that will absolutely keep you offline yet oh it has your sense of oh, what has. the online is oh yeah. and i couldn't agree more and and i own two copies of it <clears throat> and uh well buy a third and, and everyone listening buy one for your mum because she'll want to read it as well oh yeah no i mean it's it's exactly uh it's exactly the kind of thing I want to spend more and more of my time doing after well, practically living on the internet for the last 20 years. Uh, I want to, you know, immerse myself in old media and, um, you know, yeah, I just, the only thing that I find useful anymore for the internet is things like this and is talking to like-minded people and listening to like-minded people. And I've been really quiet for most of this call just because it's 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 fascinating to listen to whatever he says but also i do i i do uh it is hard for me to engage in the kind of the current the current um political discussions because i just well, really... can i can i yeah can i help you help 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 me pull pull this away from that so uh, sure. you mentioned that you um when you were reading Zenora stuff, you went out, you said, you're not a reader, you're not a big book guy, but after reading this, you went and read a bunch of PKD material. I did. And I asked, how do you think, if you had never read that stuff before, and you were, you know, you already had the sort of key to unlock a lot of the secrets of it through Zenora's writing, mm -hmm. how did that I guess I'm asking, how did going to that material in that order, what was that experience like? It was incredible. Um, and I specifically, I read, um, I started with the Vallis trilogy, but I first read Radio Free Albemuth to get the kind of precursor uh, to that, because I, I, I found out that that was kind of his first draft. Um, it was, I had actually, I, I bought the exegesis when it came out and, and struggled a lot with it at the time, but, um, no, it was, it was amazing. And it was the most just, um, I think, I think the insight that Znor, 
uh, gave me, you know, approaching the PK Dick material was extremely helpful. And it is still to this day, the most kind of prolific reading phase of my, of my life. I read, I read 11 of his novels in like three months, which is more novels than I've read in the last three decades. I mean, it's to be honest, you know, um, and, uh, it was it was all a blur really because it was just so fast but but um yeah i mean yeah he did he i think he did in the early 60s i think palmer eldridge was one of them um which which was one of the ones i read i read ubik i read maze of death uh, three stigmata uh blood money valis divine invasion which was my favorite of all of them um transmigration Radio Free Albemuth, uh, Police, Flow My Tears, and Penultimate Truth. Um, I think that's all of them. I might be forgetting one. Anyway, uh, it, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not good at articulating deep, insightful things about material I've read, but it was extremely inspiring. And and oddly enough, you know, I've shifted my creative energy into writing which is never something i thought i would do as a musician and as a person who struggles reading so just so people listening can understand that thread uh bill you put into our chat that he wrote 11 novels in three months and uh wally you're saying you read 12 of his novels in 12 weeks which is an interesting kind of parallel or mirroring um, but what, what did you find when you started to write? Like, did you find that you were more deeply able to integrate parts of yourself that had been neglected or that had been, um, kind of superficially shut out because of the constant novelty of the internet? That's a good question. I found that I was, um, I, I I approached it the same way. I mean, I'm a composer by tr by trade. That's my job, and I found it actually very similar to the process of writing music. I was very um, meticulous and and aware of the rhythm of of the of the text. Um, I found that I was more at ease being uh, almost writing as a someone described my writing as narrator as camera. And I and 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 I like to just state things very matter of factly, but the actual content of what I'm stating is a little bit out there. So, but I don't necessarily use a lot of figurative language. I just use very direct language, but it's but I'm describing things that are more figurative in nature. So, uh, but it was yeah, it was really just a, an opportunity to articulate a lot of the things that I think and talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just dis I I discovered I have a lot to say. Um, well, yeah. Um, am I understanding that it was because of after reading Snore's book that you took up writing? Is it, have I got that right? Um, it certainly had a major impact, and Zanor, my relationship with Zanor has had a major impact on my desire to write. And also just reading, re between, it was it was really, 
at the same time, I also discovered Alan Moore uh, and his his graphic novel Promethea kind of changed my life and inspired me to want to just to tell to tell crazy stories and to to use the medium as a as a way to express so much of what I, I will, you know, I have observed in my personal research. Um, and I was previously like my my whole kind of uh, introduction to the sync book community began with uh, starting a podcast and I abruptly stopped doing that podcast because I realized that interviewing was not a format that I found suitable for what I wanted to express. I was too eager to just talk the whole time and 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 it was not an appropriate format to just, you know, invite someone into a discussion when I really wanted to do a monologue and there's, you know, and, and that would be very rude. So, but yeah, I mean, and I met Zenor through the sync book. And so, yeah, in, in a way, indirectly, the sync book, Zenor, and and the, the research that this community has set me on led me to a desire to write and kind of abandon, <laughs> the, you know, 20 years of, of, of music making. Not abandon, I still do it for a job. But there's that fascinating thing with this book, Death Sweat of the, Cl of the Cluster. And I keep making that error. I keep saying it's Death Sweat for instead of of. I apologize, Nor. I don't mean to. But that's an interesting, maybe maybe that means something to you. Um, where it's a really generative book. Uh -huh. every, every, it's, it's brimming with that kind of. You know, we were talking much earlier about the formatting and how these quotes jump off the page. And mm. I remember having a conversation and Alan's like, oh, yeah, jarring. And I'm like, I never use that word. I didn't say they were jarring. I said they they were unexpected. And that is a positive. Um, but it's kind of like the zebra only emerges when you look at the at the middle point of the Vesica Pisces and you have to really steel yourself to look at that because, and maybe Bill, you can talk to this, that the Vesica Pisces is generative, but it is also kind of the, a crude or very symbolic depiction of, of, of female genitalia in that sense so to actively look at that in a in a way that isn't fulfilling a lust or, or or a pornographic desire but to see it as the miracle of motherhood is something that's really interesting about this book as well yeah absolutely i think that you know this uh, through a McLuhanistic lens, the Vesica Pisces uh, would be the two eyes converging into uh, a sort of third eye that allows you to uh, read print, right? Because McLuhan always said manuscript was something that you look at, and looking is different from reading. In order for us to shift from looking to reading, we have to do a sensory shift that puts a strain on our eyes and it eliminates the two eyeballs into a single eye. But is this the true third eye? You know, I think what it is, is it's a response to having your third eye being obliterated 
by the environments of which you're trapped, which would be the black iron prison. Um, this, uh, this changing of the fonts is a popping out of the text that forces you to remember, my eyes are for reading, correct, but predominantly they are for looking. And looking is where true reality is. Uh, if you attempt to read reality, you're going to become schizophrenic. And I think anyone who goes into a deep dive uh, in the last uh, 500 years with print uh, has moments where they have to question whether or not they've been touched by the madness in that way. Um, and, you know, right, you, just can't, a, you can't yeah. look without looking in that sense. Well, you know, there's a famous uh, part of uh, Medium is the Message where uh, there is a film of um, they made a film for these tribesmen to be able to uh, build a well, I think it was. And so it was an instructional video for them to be able to build a well to draw water so that they could escape um, dr uh, droughts and they could find constant water sources. And when they showed this film uh, to the tribes, the chicken, they saw something that the literate man could not perceive. Because when you draw your eyes in together into that Visica Pisces kind of thing, you are no longer looking or seeing. You are doing something completely different. You are reading. So in the sense that whereas uh, the print would be the DNA code, you are the RNA that's transcripting that. And what I think this whole point of Znor's ability is to convolute that to where you no longer are an RNA transcripting DNA you then become a projector of DNA. You start to write, you start to put down your own code. The RNA becomes a DNA producer. And this is a radical shift in your, your sensory surroundings of the reality. One tag to this, because you know my ego is as big as the next guy. Um, if you go back to my Sync Book 2 article, uh, you'll see elements of the exact same uh, font shifting and playfulness in the font in my article. Uh, it, that's Phil, not something. Phil, I am I am literally just took a picture of your Sync Book Two article <laughs> to put into this fucking chat. I am literally standing here holding your <laughs> a, your chapter and a camera with my phone camera trying to get this thing. But actually, the thing that I was zeroing on zeroing in on was it says. Uh, I let's see. I wrote a chapter for something called the Sync Book Two back in 1981. It was a failure. One popular magazine called my ideas naive. The Kubrick Transformer gibberish, and my arts and crafts section, the quote projection of a crude vagina. Others just thought I had too much time on my hands. When asked about the chapter, Phil K. Dick said that first he was going to have to call his lawyer. That second he had no idea what an MP3 player was, and third, the vagina in question was actually a quote hyper vagina. When asked to explain what he meant, he said that hypervagina is just is just slang for the unconscious mind or a tower. Dick wouldn't say if he followed the instructions or not. That's what I was about to. That's what I just took a picture of. That's awesome. If I can just jump in for a second um, to Bill's point about about talking about looking and watching and uh, and the eyes function of reading and everything. It just it just called to mind my, my historically for me at least my issue with reading was always like as soon as I would just see a block of text it would just I, it would just you know it was almost like a fight or fight or flight 
response to it because I knew that it was something that I didn't want to, you know, put the mental energy into. And I was always just like, where's the big picture that I can look at and not just this massive chunk of text. And I think that it's interesting um, in terms of what we've been saying about about the formatting of this book and about and and I was mentioning earlier how playful it is and it's true I mean it 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 does and and to Nick's point earlier it's like it it distinguishes it as you know from an academic text even though it has trappings of an academic text and um you know I I just want it's just a comment I wanted to make um about as a reader as a person who struggles with reading the the formatting definitely um, creates this uh, fluctuation or I don't know it gives it a, it gives the it gives the just the picture when you just open open it to any random page and just get you know look at the at the at the gestalt of the of the image of the of all of the text it breaks that mold that I have always feared when I just see a big block of text and I'm like I don't want to make the effort. Um, and another point I wanted to make is my wife is Italian and, and she's very fluent in English, but something over the years I've noticed is that she mixes up the word look and the word watch because they only have a single word in Italian that means both, which is guardare or guarda or like, which is based on the word guard or a watch. Right. Um, and and we've had multiple conversations over the years about what the what the linguistic difference in English is between the word to watch and to look. And I've always said, well, watching when you you watch a movie, and she's like, hey, watch this photo. And I'm like, no, you don't watch a photo. You look at a photo. And she's like, well, what's the difference? I'm like, well, you watch a movie. Watching, I guess, is something that is happening in time, whereas looking at something is something that is 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 more static. And then there's reading to Bill's point. It's like, are are you watching the text? But or because it's staying in position, it's it's static. But are you looking at it? Or or are you know to to McLuhan's point, the word reading is is based on the Latin radare, which is to guess. So it's almost like you're you're I don't know you're doing something in between watching and looking. It's like it's it's like and a, there's the French to regard as well. Right? Like, are you yeah. Regarding there you go. it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just some some comments I wanted to make. Well, I think it all goes back to to a hunter's. So so yeah. the first roles would be hunter and gatherer and yeah. the best hunters and the best best gatherers would be uh, the people whose senses were most heightened and the people who were able to take that heightened sensory input and formulate it into a focused will. So a hunter would look out into an environment, but then the beginnings of reading start when a hunter reads an environment and is able to pick up on certain motions to identify where the prey is. Whereas a gatherer would go into the forest and would be able to look at the different berries and leaves and identify these berries do this, this leaf does that. And mm. so this kind of stress and pressure in the sensory ratios of the human being put an added emphasis on the brain, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, 
any environment that is static is a machine, right? McLuhan said gardens are machines, right? They are designed to increase um, mutations that are directed towards positive mutations. But obviously the fallout is that are what happens when negative mutations occur and fall out of step with the positive mutations. So, um, well, that comes back to your point before about the DNA and the RNA. And the RNA is fully vulnerable to the epigenetics of whatever that environment is. So it, it becomes dependent on the, you know, as Hegel explains, like the master and the bondsman don't exist independent and cannot exist independently of one another. And so I think, Bill, with your point about the significance of the brain in both looking and watching is before you can really look at something, you need to have read about it. You need to have a reading. You, you need to have been read into it uh, through mythology, science, politics, history, like to make sense an instant taxonomy of this berry is edible or this berry will kill me requires that ability to formulate the third eye through that con um, condensation of knowledge over time. Agreed. That brings to, that brings to mind the, the, the anecdote of the, the natives looking out to the looking out at the coast of the ocean where the big frigates from Spain were arriving and them just thinking that something was wrong with the water. They had no way of they're, they're looking, <laughs> you know, they had no they had no context in which to recognize the ships as ships. They just thought, what the hell is going on? Why is the water behaving so oddly? It's the inverse of Bill's chicken. In the, in the well film where, and, and Bill, wasn't it that the chicken was like in two frames only? It was, it was very a like, microsecond. It was a microsecond, but it was the only thing that their eyes could see. So it's just like, uh, just a TV was static and then it would flash like a picture of, uh, like David Plate did in his famous sync film. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's some things that you just can't not see. <laughs> and um, it depends on how you've tuned in your sensory uh, modalities. Yeah. But that's also where Zor's, Snor's book comes back around because reading Snor's book is a way re-engage with this material through... And, and what's so fascinating, for me at least, and, and I'm sure you will agree, is that this was written contemporaneously. Yeah, as we sort of said in the earlier sections of this call, it felt as though it was always coherent as a book when you're reading it through, like that this was kind of preordained or there was a vision to this that Zanor was always chasing and it is a code to our present written from the past that reveals that's perfect you know i when i put together that 
you know, uh, obviously there's a parallel between uh, Kubrick and uh, Clark constructing a novel through which to make a movie, right? That the false work for the film was done in the architecture of the book. Uh, I feel like um, this is also expressed in uh, Dostoevsky's final novel, The Brothers Karamazov, which uh, is, if anyone knows Dostoevsky, I think I'm getting those right. Um, massive, massive tomes, right? Uh, a good way to survive yeah. the winter. But that book, that novel was written in a serial fashion uh, that was released in a newspaper or a journal. So imagine opening up your daily or your weekly and you would read a chunk of Dostoevsky every week. And over the course of three years, you would have uh, completed his novel. And it almost makes me think maybe that's the way you're supposed to read Dostoevsky. Uh, we are a culture of binge watching, but I do miss uh, shows like Lost, where it was a weekly and you had six days to process and six days to discuss and six days to, in that sense of reading as um, to guess, a big part a big part of the excitement of TV was, have we figured this out? Did we, are we able to guess what's going to happen next? Who shot JR? You don't get to savor that shit when you're binge watching a show nowadays. You just kind of go, mm, feed me more, feed me more, feed me more. And I think we're obese on that binging of information and things are going to cool off and we're going to kind of come back. Uh, to what the blog does. It's, it's very Talmudic, right? As, as they say, time flows through the Talmud. And, and how you read it is slowly over time, and you see um, the current of time flowing through um, what is written down. Um, so I agree. And then the, there's the element, and... Uh, Wally, maybe you noticed this when you were reading PKD, when you were binge reading PKD. Yes. That, that the I Ching is this kind of, it, it's a constant character that is there but not there. Like if, if you weren't paying attention, you could miss it. Yeah. At the same time, the characters are so reliant on the I Ching and like the relationship bill that you've expressed in the past between chess and the I Ching with the um, 64 squares matching the, the 64, um, I guess, symbols, but then the infinite space that the permutations of that open up. Exactly. And in like the 64 codons of DNA that lead to infinite, infinite source of unique individuals. Um, and it's sort of like the leap from Super Nintendo into Nintendo 64. It was a dimensional uh, elevation into something that approaches something that is more realistic. Oh, can I, can I jump on that? So you, uh, you mentioning like uh, the Nintendo, um, right? So, you have 8-bit going to 16-bit to 64-bit, this sort of like uh, progression like that. So there is, um, 
you guys know I've started working on, on a video game. And um, so I, it's, I'm thinking in these different terms and learning new terminology. And there's this uh, on page 89 of Zanor's book. It says, uh, I, so I guess I'll just read you the quote first. It says, the invisible architecture behind language takes on elfin forms right before our eyes. This is deeply mind-blowing. Not only is information or language alive in an abstract sense, but it is also embodied in a way that is virtually biological. And not only does it present itself in organic form, but it desires to play, to communicate. The way that these visible syntactical sprites attempt to do this is also unique. They create almost impossible, quote, linguistic objects for us to behold with all of our senses. Okay, so that's from Snore's book. Now, here's the thing. He says, syntactical sprites in video game terminology, they're like enemies, the play, you know, you're Mega Man, you're running across the screen. Those are sprites. Okay, that is what that's called. The, um, to work on this game it requires using a programming language, which is called object-oriented uh, uh, programming language. So this linguistic objects, uh, like all these sort of, there's just like within this phrasing, talking about machine elves are literally the language that we use to, uh, yeah, exactly, Wallace says in programming syntax. I mean, it's, it's all in there. So there this 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 one paragraph jumped out at me like oh shit this is the same kind of idea and earlier bill you mentioned um a chessboard and you say hey a chessboard is a fixed space right and we we think of that grid of 64 squares so what is that eight by eight um yep right is a chessboard so uh something when i started working this game is i was like curious of like trying to get a sense of space. So I went back and I looked at the old Nintendo Zelda game and I literally like counted what is the grid? That map that you know we I'm sure you can close your eyes and picture the old school Nintendo Zelda game that takes place on a grid. What is the grid? So that was an 8 by 16 grid. And I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting that like that's how much space you get from that." Um the original Metroid takes place on a grid which is 32 by 32. And that's, um, they don't fill in all of those slots, and there's a lot of repeated, they like literally repeated grids. Um, that's a whole other conversation where it's like, uh, it's almost like that's the algorithm uh, trying to fake complexity. Uh, a room, you know, in the three squares in and 10 squares down is repeated, you know, seven times throughout this grid. You, you just don't notice it when you're running through this, you know, then the, you can mix and match and all this sort of stuff. So Metro, the Metroid map is interesting, but just to say, like, I was trying to get a sense of all this and I keep thinking in terms of uh, referring back to chess in my mind of like, if Zelda was eight by 16 and chess is eight by eight, you know, just sort of, again, thinking of these fixed spaces and what they, how much information you can pack into how big a world feels when it's of that size. Uh, it's just fascinating to me. And anyway, I just wanted to throw that into this, this conversation. Well, it applies directly to the map of the United States and the whole idea 
of America as being an, an alchemical oven, right? It wasn't one unified country. It was 50 states unified in one country. And David Plate talks about this with the magic squares in the sense that every confined state or every confined space is its own magic square. And in this union of 50 states, what you essentially have are 50 machines or 50 gardens or 50 alchemical ovens to where uh, when you have the Miss America contest or you have uh, the athletics or musicians, you'll have the best musician from every state. And when you look at the 50 musicians who represent the best musicians in every state, each one will approach some levels of mastery or some level of creative control, but they will all come with a certain local flavor, right? And then if you have 50 unique best musicians, each with their own local flavor, when you're able to wrap your head around that completely as the totality of, of the country, then you have a more complex uh, and more enriched environment uh, that leads to uh, the success that is the American dream. Um, that's where my head goes. But it, to some extent, it's more than that as well, though. It's 50 plus because, I mean, D.C. is not a state and that is a huge sort of element within America and American culture. But then Puerto Rico, American Samoa, and I would argue Australia is is kind of like you know, it's not the 51st or 57th state within the union. There's something to be said about the sort of way Gough Whitlam was expelled from, lead from leading this country and replaced by a compliant leader who would follow the, the American hegemonic project and the kind of interweaving of the CIA in that. So, and and then within even within that, Australia is a series of, of its own magic squares. And, you know, it, if we go back to the virus for a moment and, and think about what the pandemic has done... Um, to every society on earth. I mean, to throw, to throw it out in, in a different way, Ethiopia is now on the brink of civil war and simultaneously on the brink of war with Egypt, just as one dimension of that. Yet in Victoria, we had probably the hardest lockdown anywhere on earth. Uh, as a way of combating the pandemic, and we did we did it successfully. Yet nobody really noticed on the international stage because Victoria is one is a relatively small state, where the second most populated state in Australia, um, and so we just don't really resonate with the international kind of memes and so it's like a separate reality when people buy the efficaciousness of you know non-medical 
interventions for keeping people safe in the pandemic. And I'm I'm sitting here like, well, we did it, but no one ever mentions us. No one ever mentions what we were able to do. Um, and and just for a point of comparison, I mean, some people talk about New Zealand. We have the same number of people as New Zealand, roughly, just our state, right? We have roughly four million. They have about five million. And but we're more concentrated, obviously, because we have much less space. So the rates of transmission or the potential for rates of transmission are much higher. Um, and it's kind of, you know, that, that frustrating thing where that confined space of the chessboard, those 64 squares only matter if you put chess pieces on the board. Otherwise, it's just a decoration. Well, I think what you're seeing with the pandemic is a flattening uh, and you're, you're seeing a leveling and, um, and a great equalizer. Uh, the fault of America was it's uh, the implosion of the city uh, caused America really to have uh, three states and then 47 pawns, right? You have uh, Los Angeles, Chicago and New York. And I'm sure someone could get into a geographical beef with that statement, but I think it's it's pretty correct that those would be the three superpowers of this country. What happened was was that the implosion of those mega cities started to take the best and brightest from the other 40, 47 states, and really making this drought of of entire states that are completely forgotten and and, and were sucked dry in a sort of vampiric way. And 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 left them destitute, backwards and corrupted uh, in in a sort of illness way. Um, So. I definitely believe that these towering uh, megastructures, L.A., Chicago and New York uh, are. Are are going to be going through. um, A. A de-escalate or a de-escalation. I think the cities will flatten, and that the the hope is that all that concentrated power, all that concentration of uh, of forward thinking, or maybe for lack of a better term, all the best people, that those now uh, get flattened and spread out, and to where the greatest areas of need are. Um, well, it's it's also there's this interesting thing of like. Reagan is LA, Trump is New York, without like they're both definite, and then Obama is Chicago, or more specifically Illinois. That's really good. Yeah, that is so, good. I and I, if I just want to throw one thing to what Bill said of this idea of like the great equalizer and all this sort of stuff, there was throughout this year, throughout 2020, there have been a slew of articles so, saying like, "Is New York dead?" Right. Uh, is the is the city dead? And 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 particularly using New York as the example that like there will be this mass exodus and all this sort of stuff. What those conversations don't take into consideration is how they the the New York that you're describing is not the New York that was the superpower. It was you know as everyone tried to jump in and gentrify and 
corporatized and all this sort of stuff in the last you know 40 years everyone has I, I within my lifetime i've watched you know times square go from the the place where you'd go for you know prostitutes and heroin to go to the place where you go to buy like disney toys you know um I mean, it's sort of like Disney took over and quote unquote cleaned up, right? Rudy Giuliani cleaned up. This was this this fascist um, whitewashing of these areas and all this sort of stuff. But you, they lost their cultural significance in the process. So I just want to say, with this going back maybe to the idea of like the zebra in in front of the grass, behind the grass, all this sort of stuff, is to say like the when the mainstream news says, "Oh, New York City's dead," that could for my estimation, can only serve to save it, right? Good, let all the fucking corporate leeches pull the fuck out of there, think it's dead, and maybe the city and the people can thrive again. Right, and in the 70s in particular, Times Square was the site of black black exploitation cinema. Like, you know, you had the kind of, well, taxi driver kind of docs documents that in in a way um but it's also interesting alan because we were talking about in the lead up to the final um sync quick news that you put out we were talking about trump tower chicago and bill i'm not sure if you're aware but there were so many interesting things in the lead up to the election that focused on trump tower in chicago with like it being hit by lightning. And then also there was a, um, a man of Asian descent who scaled it and then was arrested after a standoff with the police and then escaped police custody. I'm not sure what happened to him from there, but that kind of, man in the high tower right or the man literally on the high tower the trump tower in chicago it, what's interesting about trump tower is that when it was first uh, built it did not have his name on it and then it was like about two years later that he branded it with his name um which I don't know if there was a um, a license or it, why that decision was made further down the road after completion. It's almost as if he knew that uh, in order to be accepted, he had to be invisible. And maybe that goes back to the 108-year cycle of, uh, of being hidden and then being revealed, right? That um, once the name was then placed onto the tower, that's when that flip happened and this transition into whatever modality it is that that cycle uh, controls. Um, well, the other thing with that is that a lot of the buildings that say Trump on them are not even owned by the Trump organization. That, and this is the, the whole facade with the quote-unquote Trump organization is that he is licensing his name rather than his name being a representation of his work. People just 
by the Trump brand to boost the attraction of, of whatever it is, whether it's Trump Stakes, Trump Tower, Trump University, Trump Vodka. You know, when he finally goes to prison, they'll rename it, you know, instead of Sing Sing, it'll be Trump Prison. Well, this is a perfect segue back into uh, Zenora's book. Uh, after the ichthyology section, he opens up with the tale of uh, Prime, Prime Minister Abe, right, where he unveils a new war plane uh, and it has the number 731 on that. Is everyone familiar with that yeah. part? And so in yeah. uh, a core part of what Zenora brilliantly dissects is this question. When the news conference was broadcast and the plane was there and Abe was doing his speech, as all politicians do, immediately Chinese and Korean people flooded networks with complaints with the audacity of a prime minister of Japan debuting a war machine with a number directly tied into a death camp uh, that tortured Chinese and Korean people uh, in the sense that uh, if you did not were not aware of the um, epidemic control department that these uh, these mad scientists uh, controlled it, that was called Department 731. If you didn't have that memory or that understanding, you would you would never even notice the number. But if you had been affected by Depa Department 731, you would seize upon that. You would then in a series of correspondences go to warplane to who are the enemies of Japan to why is this person purposefully uh, referencing uh, what can only be uh, the Eastern Holocaust or an Eastern uh, Auschwitz, maybe more accurately. Uh, I think this goes back to Trump and to Biden. Uh, if you look at Biden's uh, presidential logo for this election cycle, you see what he does with the letter E, correct? Yeah, it's three unbroken lines. Now, most Americans just see that as, uh, you know, Alan brilliantly uh, brings up with the the correlation between Coke and Pepsi, you know, same as it ever was. Same uh, poisonous, sugary beverage to make you forget about your real troubles. But if you have a not the other place your brain could go to with that E is maybe the menu icon that everyone sees in a lot of iPhone apps. So you would say, oh, that's just a meaningless coincidence. But when you look further into those three red lines, we come back to the E Ching. And now we get this nice balance between the Trump card and this E Ching symbol. This is a three-lined trigram that is a fundamental building block of the E Ching. And these three unbroken lines are the symbol for heaven. Now, this is maybe an esoteric concept for Americans or for people who haven't reached that part, that shelf in the library. But if you do have that memory or that connection to the I Ching and you do see those three unbroken lines signaling heaven, you would say, hmm, red, trigram, heaven, Biden, China. Because who did Trump have a very big uh, uh, poor relationship or is anim the animosity? Trump is anti-China, right? China flu. Bad guys, those China. Bad men. Um, so if you have that lens and you're Chinese, uh, you might see the Biden logo. And if you see a symbol that just jumps out and says heaven and it's red, I think that's a not so subtle and pop kind of 
pops out to a nation of the biggest nation in the world that, oh, America is trying to get rid of this evil monster, and they're trying to elect someone who understands what our goals are in this lifetime. Uh, it would be as if the Trump logo didn't have a capital T, it had a lowercase t, and maybe had a certain color, and it would pop out and people would say, ah, that's the Christian cross. This man is trying to communicate to us that he is dedicated uh, to the, the books of Judeo-Christian theology, uh, something that would be uh, at odds with the holistic and time-based uh, philosophy and uh, quasi-theology of the I Ching. Or perhaps more appropriately for, you know, the, the outgoing president, that the lowercase t represents a burning cross in, say, Mississippi in, say, 1960. Well, there is a big, uh, in the Q uh, mythology of Trump as a savior, right? Uh, when I hear the letter Q, I think of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? In Qumran, Qumran right? Um, that letter is associated with those buried texts that revealed uh, a long forgotten truth. Trump is trying to make America great again. He's trying to go back into history, right? He's trying to fight the forces of time and to travel back into the museum. Um, whether or not that's true or not, um, it, it's something that is consciously or subconsciously encoded into the entire process. And I mean, for any NLP freaks, you know, and for everything that we've learned in media in, in the last 25 years, it, it cannot be uh, brushed aside as mere coincidence uh, in this day and age. It, to do so would be foolish. I think there's something there. Like, Make America Great Again is this bridge to Reaganism because it was Reagan's thing. I, I, I mean... I don't know with Trump, there was something very early on in 2017 that gave me, and it's ineffable, it wasn't one particular thing that I'm struggling to remember right now. It, 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 was, a, it, it was a cluster of experiences that kind of, there was an emergent property in which I felt that Donald Trump's presidency is consciously a parody of Nixon's second term. Uh, I, th I thought to revise it to think, no, it's a parody of Reagan's second term. And now maybe I'm at the point where, well, it's a parody of, of the, the combination of Reagan and Nixon's second terms but that necessarily it, it isn't going to be extendable, that he, you know, the way that he handled himself in 2016 put a expiry date on his presidency by 2020. And it, it, his function, like, like, it's detestable and it's repugnant, and it's embarrassing that 
he represented America for four years. But if you, well, you go, Bill. Well, he didn't represent America. That was America. All right. Um, he was not a mistake. He wasn't an anomaly. He was the true will of the people, especially when Bernie Sanders was taken away as an option during that election cycle. Um, That's what I was going to say. If you go back to 2015, the end of 2015 and into 2016, the anger, the resentment, the pain that people have felt under Obama and the sense of frustration with the fact that for eight years you had someone who spoke all the right words eloquently and it was so obvious by that point that it was only performative, that there was nothing substantial beneath it, that this was just neoliberalism with a with a different mask. And your your sort of sense of well, could Bernie Sanders in twenty sixteen have beaten Trump? Yet he couldn't have beaten Clinton. And that's the whole cesspool of Arkansas politics. Sometimes you're the train and sometimes you find yourself on the train tracks at the time. Um, that, that sense of... <laughs> so Alan's just made a logo, Haydn, which is the combination of Hillary Clinton's logo with Joe Biden's logo. But the, the, the desire of the speculation of the desire of the voters in America was that Trump was a reactionary figure who placated a sense of loss ego loss or identity loss and that it was like throwing a molotov cocktail into washington and the follow to that would be the cleansing fire from which the phoenix rises so is biden the phoenix or is harris the phoenix or is it the combination of joe and 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 kamala I hate if I've mispronounced that. I don't mean to. That combination as being the, the what comes after the fire as we. Well, if we go back to the chessboard, I think Trump was saying, let's close the borders. Let's make this country its own confined space so that we can play great again. So we can get that confined energy that elevates the experience above the board right now with biden biden would like to be part of the global chessboard right uh biden would like to have in sort of the um uh, the seeming under 
underpinning of the progressivism of the left is that no borders are necessary. Let's uh, get rid of the confinement of the chessboard. Let's go into this global matrix. But the danger is, is that does our modern society function when you have a chaos type of chess? Do we actually uh, require this sort of 64 hexagram block to be in place as a sort of circuit, right? As a sort of engine that drives a modern society? Or do we have the technology now to do away with the chessboard and maybe go into the cloud? Um, yeah, a lot of parallels there. Well, we're, we're becoming more and more cyborg every day. Like, you know, people are worried about the vaccine for COVID-19 and the idea that somehow uh, nefarious forces are going to use it to insert the market in the form of nanotechnology and a microchip and whatever. And it's like, yeah, but at the same time, you will put a Whopper from Burger King in your mouth and you will smoke a cigarette or, you know, you'll, you'll smoke a meth pipe or whatever it is. And then you'll turn around and complain and say, but I don't know what's in that vaccine. It's like, well, you do. You do know what's in the vaccine. You just don't want to accept it because accepting that expertise and coherence of scientific knowledge can be developed is a blow to your ego because you know, like, and I'm saying you here, but it's. Hey, man, I'm going to throw something at you. So, uh, to, to sort of, we're going to go in this direction. I just want to throw this in here. I think it's fascinating that just a few months ago, when Trump, the Trump campaign was claiming that they had a vaccine ready, uh, stand, I'm like, like, you know, like, I, I pay attention to who says what. So, you know, I sort of classify my timeline like, these are just neoliberal repeating MSNBC. People, you know, talking points. These are the people who are going to repeat uh, conspiracy. Alex Jones talking points. These are these people. These people. These people. And I don't, I don't mean that in a shitty way. If it sounds shitty, oh well. But just to say, like, I sort of try and read the room of like get a sense of what's being said. Oh, if these same five people are saying this same thing, you know, and you can kind of get a sense of what the the talking points are at any given mo moment. And I do recall that when the Trump campaign said, oh, we've got a vaccine, it's going to be ready before the election, we're, we're, we're done, we're, we totally got this in the bag. And all the mainstream, like the standard MSNBC neoliberal people who normally like are so any, you know, they're the quickest to like label someone an anti-vaxxer. They're like, well, I'm not taking that Trump's thing. You know, no way, no way do I trust Trump's rush to market before the election thing. And then suddenly, Two days after the election, they're like, oh, we go, we, yeah, okay, well, Biden's in and we got this other th thing on the market. And suddenly they're all like, thank God. And it's like, well, that, what changed in your opinion of, you know, so it was sort of like, you didn't want to, you didn't want the Burger King brand vaccine, but you're going to take the McDonald's brand vaccine. You know, and, and just yeah, to but say, it's, that, even, it's even worse than that. It's like you didn't want the Whopper in the Burger King wrapping. Right, but right. If I yeah, put, exactly. And the, and the same is true it's of the exact Trump people. Same the, the Trump people don't want Biden's vaccine, but they would have trusted if if Trump 
I mean, literally Trump was saying, hey, he was going to take credit for this vaccine and he was saying we're going to have this out and everyone's going to get it. I saw some Trump people being like, hey, wait a second, we're supposed to be anti-vaccine. Why would why would this come mandated from him? But for the most part, they all shrugged and said, well, if it's coming from him, we can trust it. And again, it's just the packaging, right? So uh, the um, what is seen as dangerous, what is seen as acceptable depends on who's selling it to you. If Trump's offering you the vaccine, suddenly the, the, you know, the guy in Alabama is going to say, sure, I'll take it. Absolutely. You know, I, tr- I trust Trump to make the give me the right thing. He's not going to poison me. But if it's coming from Biden and, and Bill Gates, then it's then it's satanic or something. So it is just really fascinating to see how like, watching people's opinions of the exact same thing change depending on who they thought it was coming. It from. wasn't quite the exact same thing, though, because it was Trump said we have a vaccine. It'll be ready. Um Biden didn't say that. It was the company that had the vaccine, and it just happened to be after the election. So, like, that that's the distinction, is that um, Trump will say anything in any moment to, to further whatever it is he's trying to further. And, and so, um, yeah. I mean... But there's another important thing to take note of here, is... Operation Warp Speed had a huge... Whether you like it or not, the vaccines, and there are multiple, and the university that I work at has had some contribution to um, breakthroughs within the the coding of the um, RNA vaccine, which is what this is, right? This is an mRNA vaccine um that that will work for it but you know like there needs to be some credit to as hard and and as resistant to this even as i am and uh, you know you think about well how can we give credit to jared kushner for the vaccine the the simple fact of the matter is that trump and the trump administration are still in power and if we look at America as being the hegemon of the globalized neoliberal world, then they are still at the center of power in that world. And regardless of Biden's election, if a vaccine comes out before January 20th or even after January 20th, 2021, it will be a Trump vaccine. That's just the way of it. That's how you have to classify it. It is a Trump vaccine. Well, uh, to to Doug's point, the uh, is it GlaxoCline Smith uh, that announced days after the election they had something. They did make the distinction to say they received no money from Warp Speed. 